Hello, welcome to Straight Out of Oak Park. I'm your host, Jacob Plant. With me today, I have special guest, Matt Detzler. Hi. Want to introduce <laughs> yourself, say a little something about yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Matt Detzler. I'm a friend of Jacob, and um, I would consider myself your best friend. So <laughs> if any of your other friends are listening, they understand their position and the relative hierarchy. Don't worry, both of them aren't listening. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I just want to say uh, this this uh, platform is, is built as like a, for writers and artists. You're not a writer or artist by trade, although you have done some professional writing. Right. Yeah, right. In fact, I just had uh, an article published as the cover story of the unbelievably popular magazine, uh, Production Machining. I'm sure this is uh, hitting <laughs> your doorstep. Name. Yeah, right. I mean, who's not reading? Right. But I mean, it, you know, but hey, it was the cover do they, story. Do they also sell machinery? And then that's kind of like the hook to get people to buy, buy the magazine so they can sell machinery? No, no, no. Production Machinery is a, it's a, a trade publication for okay. the machinery uh, industry. Um, so, uh, you know, metalworking and that kind of stuff. Interesting. And so, uh, but I approached them to write an article on uh, apprenticeships because I knew the apprenticeship co uh, coordinator, uh, Dr. Vicki Gordon, over at Macomb Community College, and uh, I had gotten meet, I met her, found her very interesting. Uh, I mean, she had a PhD, worked at a community college, helped um, local businesses build apprenticeship uh, programs, and then on top of that, before that, she was a tool and die maker. So I found her just as an interesting person and I approached them as an idea of doing an interview with her and doing a story. And then, um, lo and behold, they liked it so much. They made it the cover story. Yeah, Cause I think originally when you told me about this idea, you didn't think it was going to be a cover page, uh, article. No, but you know, I always had it in my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> so right. in, in fact, um, one of the things we did was we worked with the, um, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the community college and, you know, it's during COVID. So the, the campus is closed down, mm -hmm. but they have a machine shop at the community college machinery and everything. And I was like, Hey, could we get some pictures of Dr. Gordon in the machine shop? And then when they were taking the pictures and had all this nice lighting and it looked very, you know, very professional. And uh, I said, Hey, listen, uh, let's get a couple of pictures, but bias her in the lower right hand corner and leave lots of open space around the up at the top and left, you know, left of her. And the photographer uh, says to me, he goes, why, why would we do that? And I so, so they could put the masthead of the thing in case it becomes the cover story. And he just looked at me like I was insane. I was like, but I was right. <laughs> that that picture became the cover. Became the cover. So. Nice. What, and what can you give us without spoiling it for those who haven't read it yet? Oh, uh, yeah. It's a full of spoilers. <laughs> anyway. um, uh, basically, it was a, a list of the do's and don'ts uh, of companies when setting up apprenticeship programs. So apprenticeships, and probably a lot of people don't understand really what they are. Apprenticeships are a combination of education and on-the-job training. So in lieu of, let's say, going to four years of schooling, right. what you would do is you would work for four years, but during that time, you're also going to school, which is the equivalent of about two years of going to school. But you're working full-time and you're going to school at the same time and the, they're coordinating the schooling and your training at the, on the job towards ultimately getting a, uh, a journeyman's card. Uh, what's interesting is that if your apprenticeship program is actually registered with the Department of Labor, you'll become a licensed journeyman through the Department of Labor. No matter what content the or what... Um... What industry the, the well no they have in? a list of like you know a couple oh, hundred industries you know so you can be a tool and die maker or 
a pipe fitter. Okay, because I know that some there's some theater companies that have apprenticeships, but it's just kind of a way for them to get high school kids to do free labor. <laughs> like it's not. I mean, they pay them like a hundred bucks a week, and like they come in and they right. No, sets. in fact, yeah, apprenticeship is actually the complete opposite. A real apprenticeship, they they pay you when you go to school. Oh, so you go to nice. when you go to school, you actually clock in at work, and then you go to class. And you're learning at class and you're doing your stuff there. And then when you come back to work, you're on the clock. But they're also asking a lot of you, a lot of these jobs, like if you're a machinist, uh, you know, cutting metal, you're working, you know, 12, 14 hour shifts, five, six days a week. Then you have to go to school. Well, I mean, hopefully, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) That's the idea. Right. But I mean, so this is the, this is what a skilled trade is, right? You are learning a skill that's complicated and needs more than just, you know, so, um, I mean, I, I don't know if the covers this article, but I know we've spoken before about three types of um, approaches to education. Right. Yeah. So this would be one of them. And then the, the other would be, I'm assuming, tr- just traditional college. And then right. what would the third? Well, you have really three ways of like really training somebody to do something. You can train them in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You can train them at work. Right. Or you can do something in between like in a laboratory where it simulates work. But, you know, it's not actually on the job. Gotcha. And, you know, going to class is great because we control the environment. We know exactly what you're going to talk about. And we can control and canvas everything you want to talk about. The problem is it doesn't have a lot of, like, real-world tactical kind of experience to it. On the other hand, you could go to work, right? But what happens if I do the same 30 things for two weeks? And, that, and then after, you know, two weeks, I haven't done the other, you know, 20 things I need to know how to do, right? And I've seen that on the job where somebody gets used to doing like one task and they get really good at that task for three months. Right. Then their boss comes to him and says, hey, can you do this? The guy's like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah. I've never seen that. So on-the-job training has great tactical value, but it might not give you everything. The classroom might give you everything, but doesn't have a lot of tactical experience. It'd be like the difference between you can read books about baseball. It's not the same thing as playing baseball. Right. But if you if all you do is just play baseball games and don't do you know the study and the working out and the nutrition, then you're not going to be the greatest baseball player. And then, or in between, what you can have is kind of a, a lab, which would be like let's say batting practice. Right. Right. So having stuff like the machine shop at Macomb Community College gives a chance for people to work directly on a machine, but not have a clock on them that says, Hey, listen, we got to get this part out in 24 minutes, you know, right. so they can actually practice their craft and get better at it. And I don't know if this is, you said this or my old mechanics, because my old mechanic, he was retired. He, he opened a AutoZone, which I think closed down during COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he worked as a machinist in the machine lab all his whole life. And then when he retired, him and his wife opened this AutoZone. Oh, okay. Not AutoZone, um, AutoLab, uh, whatever it's called. And, um, he said something about like you know he did the same thing over and over for thirty years, or this might be a saying you may have said where like I don't have five years experience on the job, I have thirty years experience doing the same. Yeah, thing. right. Yeah, I said that one time. My boss, he said, "Hey, you should listen to that guy. He's got ten years of experience." And I think at that time I only had like one year. And I said to him, "I said, no, that guy doesn't have ten years of experience. He has six months repeated twenty times." Right. (laughs) So, right. I mean, like he's just done the same thing. I mean, he didn't learn anything after six months. Right. He just presses the button, comes in. So, And that's exactly what an apprenticeship is meant to overcome. So that when, after you've had a guy in your shop for four years, he's more than just a guy that's been around for four years. You know, in, in 
the nice thing also about an apprenticeship program, it does two things. One, it like it separates the wheat from the chaff. You know who of your workers is committed to wanting to do more and learn more because it takes a lot of work to go to work for 12, 14 hours, but also go to work or also go to class, right? And you have to, you know, you got the studying and the tests and the quizzes and the scantron sheets mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So it shows you who's really committed, right? You think, oh, wow, this is great. I'm going to get paid to go to school. Yeah, they expect you to work too, yeah. right? So they expect you not to sleep, right? <laughs> So it's, it, you know, but the other thing it does is that the apprenticeship programs, you know, the good ones, not all, you know, just because you have a program doesn't make it good. And that's really what the article is kind of about is just having an apprenticeship program is not enough. It's got to be a focus and driven program. But the other thing it does is that it builds the capital, a capital investment in your workforce, right? So that the, you know, who you, the, the workers you have now are, are really the workers you need also for the future. So that four years from now, five years from now, you don't turn around and when your best guys retire, like, oh. What do I do? What do I do, yeah. right? The good football teams always have, you know, an eye on who the next quarterback is going to be, right? Else, what happens when those guys leave? And that's really what's happening in the trades right now is that you have a lot of guys who are in their, you know, upper 50s and 60s, especially coming out of COVID. A lot of shops slow down. And guys who are near retirement, Guess what? They decided not to come back. Right. So now all of a sudden a shop is now three, you know, two and a half years after into COVID. And now they're like, hey, come on, guys, come on back to work. And their best guys are like, no, nope, that's good. I like not going to work. I'm going to I'm retired. I'm done. Thank you very much. And they're now like, holy smokes, how are we going to build this? And so that's why this article, I think, actually made the cover was because it's telling people, hey, listen, we got to prepare for the future. You got to be deliberate about it. I've seen apprenticeship programs that are not deliberate. We're going to throw the kids into a community college program, and then we're going to have them work, and we're done. And that that one of the things that Dr. Gordon talked about is that does not work. You have to be you have to talk to the community college, explain to them what you want out of it, right? You have to make sure that the guys when they come to work are are you know there's some directed training going there, right? They're not just you know, doing what the job for that day is, but every day they're growing in their skill set, right? So that four or five years from now, you know, you have a guy who's really developed. Now, of course, what's interesting also is that when they're going for their apprenticeship, they're also building credit card, credit hour, credit hours for going to college. Right. So you're building, you know, so I've met guys who were apprentice apprenticeships. What's your through. journeyman's card? Is a college degree even necessary? Well, I mean, it depends what you want to do, but if you want to go in and become an engineer or whatever right. else, okay, yeah. now now what happens is you have real world knowledge. I've met guys who are uh, tool and die makers, mm -hmm. who were machinists, who worked through the program, got their apprenticeship, you know, did five, seven years on the floor, and then they went to college for another two years, picked up an engineering degree, and they're, I mean, they are the creme de la creme of engineers, because they know how stuff really happens on the floor. You know, it's interesting because when I um, when I went through the theater program at University of Detroit Mercy, they took a kind of apprenticeship approach where we would be working with professional equity union actors yeah. alongside on stage. But what they did that was brilliant is they didn't have a technical degree. Some schools have the acting degree and then the, the technical degree. So the actors, we had to do everything. Yeah. So we learned we learned everything from the bottom up. I, now, I don't know if the program is still like that. Uh, the program is not as strong as it used to be. It used to be a BFA. Now it's just a BA with some yeah it's, <laughs> it's gotten not so not, I'm, in my opinion this it's not a good of a program as it was when i went through the program 
Right. It's kind of gotten watered down. Um, but they, I mean, they still produce great actors. They produce great shows, you know, and they're, they're producing downtown, but I just, that, that kind of approach the, you know, while we were earning credits, we were actually working. The theater was run as a professional theater and we got reviewed with all the professional theaters and we got nominated for awards alongside them and everything. So I think you kind of like what you're saying. I, I think had I not been in an apprenticeship style program, I would not have been as successful as I, I'm not that I'm not great, greatly successful, but the successes I have had, uh, I, I don't think I would have had them had not I've been in such a rigorous program. Well, I think I may have told you, I love hiring uh, theater majors. I like theater majors and journalism majors. So I've had an interesting career. career. You know, I've, I've had very cerebral jobs working as like a strategist for and consultants for senators, the United Nations. Uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies, but also, you know, when I was 16, I learned how, you know, I was, I learned how to drive, in fact, a forklift before I learned how to drive a car, wow. right? And I don't think I ever really learned how to drive a car well, but I'm, I'm like, I'm really I'm good, at, <laughs> but I'm really good at the forklift. Um, and one of the things I always liked, so even when I was like, I remember one time, I think I may have told you the story, I was working for a consultancy in um, DC, very big name you know, high-end consultancy firm. And that they had an interview with a guy who came in. They said, hey, interview this guy, see if you want to come on your team. And I looked on his thing and it said that he was a uh, you know, captain of the, uh, of the, like the swim team of his college. I'm like, I mean, you understand we don't have a swim team here, right? Which I thought was a funny joke. <laughs> and he's like, well, I think that shows like leadership. And I'm like, well, I mean, did you schedule the practices? <laughs> did you schedule the meets? Did you handle the budgets? Right? Like, I mean, wait, wait, you weren't calling plays while you were swimming. I don't, I don't understand really what that has of value. But what I really liked was when I met journalism and theater majors, or at least people who worked on, you know, that like that was their side program. Some sort of deadline, right? It's a deadline, and it's public, right? That show is going to happen at, you know, at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, whether or not it, whether or not the set's ready. The costumes are ready. The people know their lines. And those people who paid $15, $20 for their ticket, they don't care that it's not a Broadway show. Right. They're expecting you to come out. You know, if you write for your college newspaper, the guy who reads a quote, you know, the professor, if you interviewed him and he writes a quote, if, if that's not what he said, he's as mad as if it was wrong in the New York Times. And nowadays, it's as public as it was in the New York Times because it's online and everybody can read it. So I like that they had a real world deadline they had to meet, right? And so one, of the th so one of the things I think that's really valuable, like in your theater program, as you describe it, is working on real, like not just, we're going to work on a play that's, you know, combine those two things. We got a play, it's coming out at this time, we got to be ready for it. And you're going to work with these professional people who have that kind of mentality. Right. They're not, they don't see it as a joke. It's not just fun and games. Right. This is what we're going to do. But also, we got you in class and we're going to be working on your skill set and honing that skill set. That double combination, that's, I mean, that's, imagine if we could do that, you know, with, uh, you know, people who are sociology majors or, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a math, mathematician right. majors, right? They're, you know, all they do is spend their time in the classroom. They're professors. All they do is spend their time in the classroom, you know. Um, I, I uh, for a good chunk of my career, I wrote and conducted lots of market research studies, and the worst market research has ever met were the academics. Mm. 
They had no real understanding about how, like, you know, I, on a regular basis, I probably managed and conducted up to a hundred polls a week that were going out in the field, coming back and in. What do you attribute that to? Because you do have an academic background. You have a bachelor's and a master's. So you, right, that's you right, did yeah. go through the academy. Right, right. And right. But I was, I think I, to be real honest, you know, uh, the real, the, the reason I think I was different than a lot of my, I mean, I went to all the right schools and all the right, you know, all the right hoity-toity stuff, right? Right. But the difference between me and the, you know, and my colleagues when I was like, you know, sitting in these, uh, these, you know, boardrooms in DC, right, uh, was that uh, I came from Detroit, wow. and Detroit puts a very strong emphasis on on getting stuff done, right? You I mean, real people. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I mean, we make stuff. Yeah. That's right. So as much as I am very cerebral. Right. Like that was always, that's just part of my DNA. Right. Is like, oh, we need to get stuff done. Like, you know, it's important to be, I think just because it's part of my nature to be cerebral and think about stuff and to be academic. Right. right? But, you know, it surprised me, for instance, when I, my junior year in college, you're like an internship in, in, in your own, in your own mind, in your you own have yourself, you, you're academic, yet you, you work and get things done. Like exactly. you said, so yeah, you kind of got, a hand in each of the honey pots of those, of, you know, as you should, right? Because, yeah. and they help each other out. Yeah. You know, my junior year, I was already submitting. Uh, I, so I got like my first paper ever, academic paper ever that was accepted at a conference was during the junior year, my junior year. It was a Eastern Sociological Society. And I submitted a, a paper on uh, Michel Foucault. I mean, you could not get more academically. I mean, a French philosopher <laughs> that, you know, I mean, I think at the time, most of his stuff was still in French, right? But I remember I told the professor, I said, oh, I submitted this paper and I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to go present it, whatever. And he looked at me like no student's ever done that before. I go, what are they doing here? Like, what are we just going to read books? And just like, we're supposed to go out and try to like, no. Now, that doesn't mean that just doing stuff. No, I don't have like, like a Nike mentality of just do it. I think the classroom is important. Right. But if you are great in the classroom. That's all you do. And that's all you do. That yeah. is not like. Like no, you know, you know, know the know that old that philosophy question, right? Does a tree fall in a forest? Does it make a sound? Right, right. That's not a question. That's an answer, because the answer is it doesn't freaking matter, right? So right. if it's like if you're the greatest, you know, uh, baseball player in your mind, well, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? I mean, like, it doesn't matter. Does it matter if you're the greatest baseball player in your head? Right, right. So I mean, that's the. I think that's uh, one of the reasons I really liked writing about like apprenticeships. Also, it gives an interesting alternative to people who are thinking about going to college or don't really have that path open to them. Especially with the tuition nowadays. You know, my father and I were just talking yesterday about that when he went to um, uh, Michigan State, so that's where he went for an undergrad, that it was about... Um, that he, I forget what it was, but it was about like $150 to go for a semester for that was just for the, for the credit classes. hours, wow. right? We, we figured out it's about a 5,000% increase wow. in price now. So, and it's, so the question is, you know, and I, and I'll hear people say like, um, I like Bernie Sanders, right? But he'll talk about like, well, we need to make college free, right? The problem with college isn't the cost. The problem with college is the value. If I go to college and I spend four years there and when I leave, you know how many people I know went to college and they're working at Kroger? Right. What was the point? 
if we made if we made the if we made college free, why does it matter? Right. So and that's because when they went, they weren't deliberate. You know, I was successful coming out of college because I I was deliberate about, okay, I'm going to come out of here and this is where I'm going to go. And this is, you know, there's a lot of people that went to college and they went to class and they just went through the motions. Right. right. And there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that go to go to college just for the, the party scene. Well, then they're just losers and let them fall to the wayside. I don't know what to say to them. Yeah, like, I mean, if I, you're intentionally making bad decisions, right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not worried about the people who make intentional bad decisions. Right. Right. right, right. Well, obviously you made bad decisions. Those are going to result. Right. It's the person who makes no decisions or worse yet does what they were told. You told me to go to college. Right. Like, isn't that what you told me to do? Right. Right. Um, and that's just, and the reality is, is that uh, most colleges so are was, terrible. I was, anti, I was anti going to college when I first graduated high school, and I was working as a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, and I, and my whole family was like, you need education. Except for my parents were very supportive. Mm-hmm. My dad was like, I'm like, I talked to him on the phone. I'd be like, Dad, look, I don't need college for what I'm going to be doing. He's like, Okay, I understand. <laughs> and you're talking to both of us have advanced degrees. Right? <laughs> I, I mean, like, and well, I, but I, you know what the real <laughs> trick is is that. I look back at uh, at my college experiences, and there were simply some uh, academic programs that were unbelievably rigorous and great, and other ones that were just, you know, we were just, you know, going through the motions. Right. And if you're, and I, I'm a very big advocate now for people to go to college slightly later in life, maybe at the age of 23, 24, 25. 22 is when I started undergrad. Right. And I think that I think that does a lot. I know uh, when I was a, a graduate assistant teacher in, uh, in grad school, you know, the toughest students I had were the ones that were over 25 because they didn't they weren't they didn't let me get away with stuff. Like if I was in classroom and I was teaching and I was phoning it in like that wasn't like they're pay, they 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 figured it out I'm paying sixty five dollars to sit in this room. Right. I could have gone to a Hootie and the Blowfish concert. Or right. $55. Right, right. <laughs> Instead, I'm sitting here and listening to you and you're just reading off notes and you're not taking questions. And when people ask you a question, you blow them off. Right. And you're right. You're right. I should treat, you know, when Hootie and the Blowfish show up for a concert for your $65 ticket, right? They put a lot of hours into practicing and developing those songs and right. Even Hootie and the yeah. Blowfish. Yeah. Right. And you know, how many, I had a professor in grad school that when he took out his notes, it was introduction to political science, right? And this was, so I was his grad assistant. He took out his notes. They were yellowed with age and they stopped at Nixon. Wow. And I'm just like, what? Like you just, you're just phoning it in. Yeah. And he's got the six months experience doing the same thing. Right. He's like, yeah. he stopped at Nixon. He's like, yeah, right. And, and the, and the students, and if you don't have students, and what do you do if you're a student? You know, it's so, education so hard because the person receiving the service is, both like a subject and also a client. And it's like, you know, what do you do? If you feel like you're, you, cause you got to get to the program, you got to get the degree. You don't want to raise, you know, red flags, right. right. At the same time you want, you know, the T I had, uh, when I, so I, I went through an apprenticeship program. So I have an advanced degree and I went through an apprenticeship machinist program because you know, Hey, why not just never sleep? <laughs> and I was, I literally went, I was doing my MBA working 60 hours a week and doing an apprenticeship program at the same time. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I, it That's was just insane. right. Yeah. That was never sleeping during that time. 
And um, I went into my CAD CAM class one time and the professor of a 16 week class, he didn't show up four times. Hmm. Like the professor just didn't show up. I'm like, looked around. Why is he not here? Right. He's just not here. And I remember talking to the, like, I went down and I talked to the dean. I was like, I need to talk to you. This is not working. Like, I'm expecting to learn a service here, you know? And uh, I think I may have told you this is that, you know, if you're a professor, professor at Harvard and you're um, phoning it in, that's okay. <laughs> Everybody's going to make it. Don't worry. <laughs> right? Right. They're but, Harvard kids. I mean, right. But if you're doing an right. apprenticeship program, a lot of those guys in there and those women, you know, this is a second chance or this is their only chance. Right. They're you know? not so academically strong suited. That right. Yeah. They're giving up a lot route. to be there. Yeah. If you went around that room and you asked those people, what else could you be doing right now? There'd be a lot of people that would be like, listen, I got, you know, I got a job to get to. I got, you know, I got a kid to watch. I got like, they, they, they're sacrificing being in that room. That's funny. I used to always tell people, the like, guy, I got a theater degree and went into the arts and comedy and all this stuff and writing because uh, I have no other employable skills. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think uh, writing, by the way, just as a side note, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the article and why I took up writing is one of the things I ran into was that if you go to a few, uh, I had worked at this one machine shop. So again, I had this, this crazy career. And um, if I went to that boss of that machine shop and I said, what do you think your number one problem is? In fact, I wrote to him actually just yesterday. I just emailed that old guy, that, that, that the president of that company just yesterday. I said, Hey, I hope you remember me. And he goes, yeah, I, I remember you. There's not many guys that are reading Heidegger while running our machines, right? There's not. <laughs> right? And, um, I, I, and I, and I remember if I had asked him, like, what do you think the number one problem is at, you know, at the company with your labor? He'd say, well, they're not skilled enough or they're not, they're not enough time on task. Guys don't show up on time. They show up late. They take long breaks, all this stuff, blah, blah. But the number one problem was, was literacy. You know, there was, there was a shift change. And during that shift change, you had to, you know, you had to leave a written lineup for every single machine and what, what's going on, where it's going, because there's complicated stuff going on, right? And guys would just openly say that I, I can't read that. Like they would, they would call you up. There was about, between the night shift and the day shift, there was about an hour gap where there was nobody, Right. And guy, like the first thing every morning I got was a phone call from the day shift guy asking me what was going on with the machines. It's an, I'm, a, I'm I just worked a 13 hour shift. Right. I have to walk into class and do, I'm sleeping in the parking lot of the school so I can go into my apprenticeship class so I then go down to my MBA class so I can then drive back into work. And this guy wants me to tell him what I just wrote him on a piece of paper. Right. And the reason is, it's not because he can't read. It's just that he can't comprehend it. Yeah. yeah the comprehension's not there. Yeah. And that's why I, that's, I'm so, so that's why one of the reasons why I wrote the article also was to push myself. You know, it's funny. I, I teach as a day job. I teach English. And um, that's the hardest thing I have with my students is comprehension. Yeah. Like I'm going through short stories. I'm going through nonfiction. I'm just trying to get these kids who by no fault of their own are two or three years behind in the, in the school system that they're in. Um, just trying to get comp comprehension out of them. Right. And one of the things I've also realized, I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people who run a lot of different companies. And what I've, one of the common, common things I've seen with very successful entrepreneurs is that they just are voracious readers. 
And I mean, they just read lots of stuff. They always got a book. They always got something. They always got something on a Kindle. They're always reading because that inspiration, that knowledge base, and also just keeping those gears going of comprehension and learning. I think the big change that will happen in the economy or just, you know, in the labor force over the next, you know, 15 years and has been happening the last 15 years was that for a long time, this, the trade that you learned was the same for the next, you know, 20 years. You learned that trade. That's what it was. And you moved on, right? You just kept doing the same job, yeah. but that's not true anymore. Learning and constantly learning is going to be whatever the skill set everybody needs. So learning how to learn right. is important. And a big part of that is being able to read and understand and comprehend. Yeah. I mean, not only for English class, but for any class you take, you have to yeah. comprehend the nonfiction text. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know. Right. Anyways, I, I, I hope that provides some kind of, you know, I think that's unbelievably interesting. This is the kind of, this <laughs> is literally so the kind of conversations we have in my car as we're driving. Yeah, as we're driving to Ann Arbor to right, watch, yeah. watch a, watch a um, show. Was that we saw again? Uh, we saw Dar Williams. Dar Williams. She was yeah. great. Yeah, she was insanely yeah, great. Yeah, that, that Iowa song at the end. You said she always closes with that. I can see why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, yeah, she's just a great singer and great storyteller. We've got 59 seconds left. Should we? Well, you know, that's one Jeopardy theme song. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thank you, for, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. Uh, I think we'll cut this a few seconds early. Thank you, everyone who li who listens. Uh, both of you, we're really happy to have you along. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Janet. Kevin. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. I right, take care, world. <laughs>